Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, want to learn how to do genetic genealogy? Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking to genetic genealogist Diane Southerd out of Florida about her new book, Your DNA Guide, The Book. Plus, I'll be chatting it up with Chris Desmond from MemoryWeb about great ways to preserve your photographs. And, of course, we'll be answering your questions on Ask Us Anything. So join us this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover. Gather. Connect. A presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome to America's Family History Show, Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. Wow, do we cover a lot of ground coming up today. We're going to be talking to Diane Southard. She is your DNA guide. She has written a brand new book. And she's going to be debuting it pretty much at Roots Tech coming right up. We're going to talk to her about that, some of the tips that you can learn from it. She is absolutely one of the very best at teaching the basics of genetic genealogy. Later in the show, we're going to talk about preserving photos. And you're going to hear a lot about photos today. And you'll hear why coming up in just a couple of moments here. Chris Desmond from MemoryWeb is going to be on. We're going to be talking about his system for that. Of course, at the back end of the show, as always, we'll do another segment of Ask Us Anything. But right now, it's time to head out to Boston and speak to the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. It's the man with three names. It's David Allen Lambert. How are you, David? Better than my grandfather, who had four names. Four names. All of them intermittently. <laughs> oh, no, really? He swapped them out. That's, uh, that's not good at all. David, i got to tell you, I am, uh, I am just whooped because here, just a couple of days ago, uh, our friends at MyHeritage released a new tool, and I know you know oh, about this. Oh, I know all and, too well. And for everybody listening who is not familiar with this, we did post some examples on Facebook, but uh, MyHeritage has come out with a new tool, and you can colorize your photographs. And it mm-hmm. is just outstanding. And if you know anything about colorization, it typically takes an awful lot of time, often takes a lot of money to pay somebody to do it, and so right now, as a member of MyHeritage, you have this amazing tool to colorize your own photos. Now, that doesn't mean they replace the old ones, because obviously the original look is special in its own right. But mm-hmm. uh, some of these pictures came out especially outstanding. And I, I think the first day I worked eight hours on this stuff. And I don't think I've ever spent that much time in front of a screen and wasn't exhausted at the end because I just kept going and going. And it's so easy. You upload a photo, you push the button, it converts it, and you go on to the next one. And uh, so yeah. you, you got to check this out. I got a picture of my dad on his high school baseball team in 1929. The whole picture is colorized with the whole crew. It's unbelievable. An 1892 New Year's Eve party with the Fishers in New York City. Unbelievable. I will say some of them, often because of the quality of the picture itself, didn't come out nearly as well. But for the most part, I mean, it's like 90% dead on. It's terrific. Yeah, um, today is actually the 100th anniversary when my great-grandmother died, and my eyes welled with tears because this is the first time I've ever seen the picture of her in color. She died in 1920. Wow. So how did it come out overall? Do you think it was pretty good? I thought it was excellent. Then I pulled pictures of my mother as a child and family reunions and things like that, and I was just amazed. I have to tip my hat to Dan Horowitz and all the team at MyHeritage for getting this 
available to genealogists yes. because it brings them back to life for us once again. It's interesting because I was doing it so fast and I was saving them into a folder on my desktop. And then I stopped and I said, well, let's see what I got so far. And then I started scrolling through them all and I got emotional. It was like it was a whole different experience with the same pictures I'm so very familiar with because it was suddenly like they were right there. And as my wife said, it's it's suddenly, oh, that's how they looked in real life. They weren't in black and white. It's very true. Well, you remember the other day back in December when I went to New York yeah. for a little while? Yeah. Couldn't talk about it. Well, yeah. You were on a secret mission. <laughs> I was. And on February 19th at 10 p.m. on the History Channel, you get to see my smiling face as I am on Black Patriots, Heroes of the Revolution. And this is going to be hosted by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. How cool is that? Well, I'm really honored to represent NEHGS and be there and to talk about these heroes of the Revolutionary War that are often forgotten. Speaking of African Americans in the colonial period, there is a African American cemetery that was found back in 2003 in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Now they're using DNA from a company in Texas called Othram, and they're going to try to extrapolate DNA to find descendants that live somewhere in New England or elsewhere. Wow. These 18th century enslaved individuals. So that's exciting. Yeah, that's exciting. That's going to be an interesting story when it happens. Well, you know, the stories just amaze me how things are kind of resurfaced, because I remember hearing about it when the cemetery was found. And another story that we heard, of course, about the 75th of D-Day, and you would think that all of the Nazi bunkers were found. Uh, yeah, they found some more. Yeah. Uh, these ones were located in Normandy at the Maisie Battery, basically two miles inland from Omaha Beach. And I know you put the story on extreme genes, so why don't you tell a little bit about what they found? Well, they, they found helmets in there. They found leftover parts of gas masks. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. And they're open to the public now. So if you wanted to go to Normandy and, and check out these Nazi bunkers, you can do it, which is absolutely uh, unbelievable. You know, American ancestors and the New England Historic Genealogical Society are the recipient of a collection of Roosevelt family papers from the Theodore Roosevelt Association of Oyster Bay, New York. Countless letters and photographs and genealogical material are now here at American Ancestors for scholars and uh, researchers to use. Boy, I love that. I'm related to Teddy Roosevelt. I figured this out at some point. It's amazing if you really get into your ancestry, especially if you've got early American ancestry from the South or New England, how many presidents you're tied to. My blogger's spotlight this week shines upon Carl Benedict McCarthy of New York City, who has a blog, not about New York City, but where his ancestors came from in the Merrimack Valley in Massachusetts, where they lived for over 400 years. The blog is ofaplace.com. So again, check out Carl McCarthy's blog about how he's looking at his ancestors from afar and blogging about it. All right. Well, soon we're going to be at Roots Tech, my friend, yep. and uh, look forward to seeing a lot of our Extreme Genes genies, and maybe we can have a meet and greet at the American Ancestors booth, and I know that you're going to be at Legacy Tree. Yes, sir. Legacy Tree Genealogists on uh, Friday afternoon, actually recording a segment right there with uh, Paul Woodbury. You know, in the entire industry, I don't think there's a better teacher of the basics of genetic genealogy than my next guest, Diane Southard, who's uh, stationed in Florida. Diane, welcome back to Extreme Genes. It's great to have you. Thank you, Scott. It's always a pleasure to be with you. And uh, I'm very excited because you have written a book about this stuff, and I think everybody who's into genetic genealogy who wants to understand how to work with the matches has to have this book. First of all, what's the name of it? So it's just called, very simply, Your DNA Guide, The Book. 
perfect. You must have slept on that for a long time. Well, it wasn't my idea, actually. <laughs> so it was uh, it was my my editor, Sunny Morton, who came up with that. I was I had all these great creative names for what we could call it. And she comes back and she's like, "Why aren't we just calling it your DNA guide, like the book?" Because that's right. what it is, that and that's is, who you are. <laughs> and that's who you are, the DNA guide, your DNA guide. So let's talk about this. First of all, how long is it, and what levels does it deal with? Okay, so the book itself is about 230 pages, and it should reach everyone at every level. That was my goal. I, I want to make this stuff accessible to anyone, and I've tried to break down all the principles in a way that I think anybody can understand. But as you know... This stuff's hard. It right? is. It's yeah. Oh, yeah. I do it every day, and I'm learning more right? and more, and I, I learn from my peers uh, as well, and, and now I'm at a point where I feel really good about it. And just when you think you've got this down, you run into something, oh, wait a minute, how'd that happen? I was helping somebody last week, and we were getting all these matches, and then we thought we had figured out who it was. She reached out to this one match, said, oh, well, I think you're looking for my dad's cousin. And I'm thinking, well, how can that be? She's got matches to both of the parents of this person. Well, it turned out that the cousin had grandparents who were brothers and sisters to the couple who were the parents of the other match. So naturally oh they fit right in. And so it, it all came together eventually. But sometimes the, the, the narrative changes very quickly, doesn't it? Well, it does. And so my goal with the book was not to provide just education or an overview. Some books have done that very, very well. For example, my dear friend Blaine Bettinger has written an excellent book on all of the principles and ideas that surround genetic genealogy, and that definitely has value. But my goal was most people don't have time to delve into genetic genealogy entirely. They just want an answer to their question. Right. Right? They just want to know the things they need to know to get to where they want to go. And that's not everything. So the goal of the book is to be more like a choose-your-own-adventure kind of book where you are coming to the book with your question. So if you've got everything all figured out and you don't have many questions, you don't need this book. Okay? <laughs> right. But if you do have a question, then at the beginning of the book, I lay out some basic principles. And then I ask you, what do you want to know? Do you want to find your two times great grandfather? Do you just want to identify a mystery match? Somebody showed up on your match list. Do you want to figure out who it is? Okay. Well, that's our goal. Mm -hmm. And then I literally take you through step by step. I say, okay, start here and do these things. All right, now I want you to look at what you have. Do you have situation A? Then I'll send you to page 47. Do you have situation B? Okay, well, then you need to go to page 62. So it's extremely customized. So I've got all of the steps. I've tried to figure out every possible, and of course, I can't think of every possible, but all of the most common over the last five years that I've been consulting with people, yep. I've taken all of the most likely situations that you're going to face, and I've tried to walk you through each single one individually. It is interesting because I, I do agree with you that there are certain types of situations that come up all the time, but what's amazing is each situation has its own little twist. It's it's Every situation is just a little different in one way or another. But I, I think having a guide to say, okay, does it fall into this category or that? Because let's face it, we do talk a lot about adoptees. We hear a lot of stories about people finding their, their birth parents for the first time or half-sibling as a result of something. But there are many of us who want to break through a brick wall, 
or want to prove that somebody actually wasn't the blood ancestor of somebody else. And those situations are kind of complex, especially the further back they go. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And even though, like you said, every situation is definitely unique, there are some basic foundational processes that we go through every single time. And those can be taught. And that means they can be learned. And that means that even someone who feels like they don't have a lot of experience doing this, I'm going to hand feed you exactly the resources that you need in order to get to the end of your goal. Now, Diane, do you uh, deal strictly with autosomal in this book, or do you delve into Y-DNA and mitochondrial also? So there are resource sections on Y and mitochondrial, but basically I say, hey, if you're looking for a male ancestor of any kind, find a direct male descendant and have them tested. That's definitely going to help you. Mm -hmm. Uh, But other than that, that's it. It's it's all autosomal, really. All, all, All autosomal. Interesting. So let's take a case. You know, I think we do spend so much time talking about adoptees and finding their folks that we tend to not talk as much about what many of us do, or most of us do, I would say, get into DNA, is trying to figure out, okay, breaking through a brick wall. And I've had some good luck with that, helping on my wife's side in particular. But I've got, for instance, a second grade that I've never been able to figure out in 37 years. And yet I've got a lot of matches that just don't fit anywhere else. And you wonder, well, could it be from there? And when you look at their trees, we don't find anybody in common. It's uh, really frustrating when it comes down to that. Is there a strategy that you would deal with for this kind of situation? I'm so excited. I can't wait for you to try it. I can't wait for you to try the book with your experience. You are exactly the kind of case that I've been, that I've written the book to help solve. Sweet. Um, Absolutely. So what I would recommend for you is something I call the leftovers strategy. So there are four key strategies outlined in the book that you'll probably come across at one point or another. If you're looking for an ancestor, that's not your biological parent. You'll probably need to employ one of these strategies. So the leftover strategy is what I call it, is when you do exactly what it sounds like you've already done. You've basically assigned everybody in your match list to an ancestor except this handful of people, right? Right. You can't fit these people into one of your other lines. So they're the leftovers. And then I teach you how to deal with that group of leftovers to figure out how you're connected to each other. Yeah, and it's strange because these people, that there's a lot of shared matches that shows up on Ancestry, but it doesn't show that any of them have anybody in common that I can say, hey, wait a minute, looks like this one may be a, a descendant of these same people and then start to, to narrow it down from there. So it's very challenging. Yeah, definitely. And, and that is the strategy. You're right. You do need to look for commonalities between how these people are connected to each other. So one thing that the book will take you through that that may help is you have to decide what I call what is your generation of connection with each match. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at this group of matches and some of them have small trees and maybe some have big trees. But when you look at each person and you think, when should I be connecting with this guy? Right. So let's say his name is James. Right. And James is your fourth cousin according to Ancestry, right? But is he really your fourth cousin? <laughs> is James, you know, 94 years old, which means he's actually some sort of removed cousin? Yeah, or maybe a third cousin once removed old, or something. Right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Exactly. So we take you through these process to figure out, okay, what is your relationship to James really? Or what is our best guess at your relationship to James? And then based on that, when do you connect to James? Because if James is 20 and he's your fourth cousin, then he's actually maybe your fourth cousin twice removed 
Yeah. Or once removed, right? Which means you have to go back to his four times great grandparents before you're going to find your common ancestor. Right. So yeah. if he doesn't have that much genealogy, then you're not going to see a common person, right? Between yeah. him and the rest of the group. So it really tells you how much genealogy you need to do. If you really want to <laughs> accomplish this, you need to push James's genealogy back to his four times great. All yeah, of that's it. I mean, at the end of the day, we have to do other people's research, right? Yes. <laughs> and so a lot of it, of it sometimes. Mm-hmm, exactly. But if you're in the position you're at where you've been working this for 30 plus years, and basically all of your other lines are pretty good, then you have time and motivation to do other people's work. <laughs> yes. You really do. Yes, I do. It doesn't mean I have to no. share it with them. Well, but... that's your choice, of course. <laughs> but it's actually really satisfying to take some of these small trees and start to push them back because so many of the records are so available for someone like you who's been doing genealogy, who's totally capable of this, and you just kind of start quipping along. You're like, man, this ancestor fits here and this one fits here and I've got these records for this. It's actually really fun oh, yeah. because they haven't done it. A lot of times it won't actually take you that long to push other people's genealogy back to the generation you need it to be. Right, right. Well, and one of the complications with this guy is we think he's got a fake name, a stage name. He was in theater. We've never ever found anybody with the spelling of his name, Waldrion. It's nice. complicated, and I, I do love the idea of the leftovers, and I use it all the time. I mean, at its most basic form, right, if you're trying to figure out which side of a family somebody comes from, well, do you know who your mother's side is? Great. Yeah. Well, we eliminate all them. The rest of the matches have to come from your father's side. Exactly, and, you yeah. know, And you can do the same going back another generation, another generation, to about, like you say, about third grades is my guess. Maybe yeah. a little bit further, but on most cases, I would say thirds, wouldn't you? Yep, that's where I like to stop. She's Diane Southern. She's written a great new book. It is called Your DNA Guide, the book. All right, we're looking forward to it. I know it's going to be a million seller. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. <laughs> You're the best. Thanks so much, Diane. And as you know, I get a lot of questions from people asking about what they do at this time of year because they want to get organized. The holidays are done. They're stuck indoors because it's winter time. And I thought this would be a great time to get my friend Chris Desmond on the line. He's with MemoryWeb.me, and it is the amazing app that helps you organize your photographs. And we can talk about this whole thing in general, Chris. Tell me, how have you organized your stuff? Obviously, you started the app because you wanted to figure out how to handle your photographs. What have you done to make sure that you've got everything in order? Thanks, Scott. So ironically, as you mentioned in the intro, we started the app because it was just after the holiday season and we got all cleaned up and we started saying, okay, we're indoors because we're in the Midwest and we want to go through and actually digitize a lot of the photos that we've had because we just don't want to take a chance of something happening in the house. We want to have it digitized back up in the cloud and when we started doing that, you start getting nostalgic, all these stories come out, you start reaching out to families, but ultimately you want to make sure that all that rich data that deals with the people, location, the date, the story gets inside the digital version of, of the actual photo. And this is the best time to do that because, you know, why not? And that's how we started the company. And this time of year is where we have a ton of our users uh, sign up and are really into their family archive projects. And 
once you kind of take a crack at it, and a lot of times it's overwhelming for folks, but once you get into it, folks find that they take chunks at a time. Yeah. Or even like the best <laughs> stuff. I mean, it might be just even one photo, like the, the most cherished family photo. Just ask yourself, have you digitized it yet and added the metadata? If right. If you haven't, start there. Check yeah. off one off the list, you know. I mean, if you do that, then you've got a sense of accomplishment. And you go for the next one if you can. Absolutely. And, you know, this is the interesting thing, too. At this time in history, we can not only do photographs, but we can digitize documents. And that's what I like about the fact that I've got some very precious, very ancient papers like a family Bible record. And I have them in plastic sleeves and protected but I want to be able to see them. I want to be able to view them. I want to be able to share them. And so you digitize them once. You take the originals and store them away. Keep them safe in plastic sleeves off the floor in case you ever had any flooding or any problem like that. And then you can use the digital image any way you want because you can never damage that. Yeah. You know, it's funny you bring that up because just a few weeks ago, uh, David Al Lambert, who obviously you know very, very well. He yes, I do. Police. Uh, together and on this show. <laughs> Love that guy. He reached out to us and he said, hey, Memory Web, I know you guys have a lot of things digitized. And I remember at one point I was talking with you at a conference and you went through some documents you had and even like report cards. Do you by chance have an old report card that you can share with me? Because he was working on some project. I don't know necessarily what it was. And, and sure enough, you know, the story I told earlier about digitizing my family archives my grandmother's the one that had the archive, and her stuff, her, her report card is one of the archives I digitized. So it was from 1932. So back when you got the paper, um, report cards, handwritten grade by the teacher, signed off by the teacher in pen, the parents had to sign it too. And when you went through it, and I found it you know, within 15 seconds because I took the time to put the metadata into it. Right. Um, what is interesting is that as you think about it, you're like, well, it's a document but why is it a photo well when you digitize it it becomes usually like a jpeg or some other file type but you can add the metadata so i added her name because she's it's her report card the school the name of the school the date the location all of these rich metadata fields and when we did that now that's always with the photo and it allows me to quickly find things in my collection so part of the issue that people have with their own archives is they have all this stuff, it's everywhere, and you can't get to it. Because everybody's always at that situation where they're telling a story and they say, well, I've got a photo of that. Yeah. Or I should show you a photo <laughs> of that. But you can do that if you take the time to digitize your things and then add the metadata. So when we quickly shot that off to David Allen Lambert, he was just so happy. And then we saw it on Twitter within two hours, so he didn't waste any time in, no. in, in using it, and glad that worked out. Yeah, David gets kind of enthusiastic about his projects. You know, the nice thing about that is, you think about it, you can really only take one image and put it in one folder at a time, unless you make multiple copies so that you can try to find it somewhere. So metadata makes an enormous amount of sense, and you can, of course, sort by it. You can sort by the dates. In this case, it would be the name of the school, the name of the person whose report card it was, maybe even the name of the teacher, right? Yeah, and it's even better than that because I think everybody uses this service called Google. And when you go to Google, you see that bar and you just type in a couple of words and your results come up. That's the way your photos and metadata should be. So while you can look at it in different ways, like by person, by timeline, 
this is where if you've done it and you have the right type of platform, in, in 10 seconds or less, you should be able to find it like a Google search yeah. of your entire archive of your metadata. Because you know what words are in there. You, sure. You always remember something about the photo. You remember, oh, it was a date, taken a certain location, certain people in there. I use certain keywords maybe in describing it. There's something. But as long as you know something about it, you should be able to quickly find it. And you should be rewarded for the efforts that you've taken in these tough winter months when, if by chance you're in the Midwest, you have snow on the ground and it's too cold. And what else is there to do besides scanning photos? No, I was I was shoveling the snow this morning, as a matter of fact, Chris. <laughs> it's Fisher here. I'm talking to Chris Desmond. He's one of the founders of MemoryWeb.me, and uh, we're talking about preservation of your photographs and your documents through digitization and also creating metadata. I just don't think there's enough conversation about metadata at this point, Chris. I think you're kind of a, a cutting edge kind of guy here. Uh, how would somebody start, would you say, if they're just if they got a big box of photographs? I mean, often there are thousands of them. I'm thinking the best way I would go about it would be to say hit a family history center and run it through their digitizing scanner, which goes very quickly. So you can at least start with that. You know, that is a, is a great option. And we get that question so often that we actually wrote a blog about it. The, the steps that one takes to, to really kind of, you know, what we call unlock the shoebox. So if you go to memoryweb.me and you kind of go into our blog, you'll see that. And what we actually do is recommend, like, what are the best practices that we've gathered over the years? And going to your library is definitely an option. If you happen to have a local photography store, I have one in town where they will do all of the digitization for you. And they even had like a what they call the shoebox special that it cost me maybe you know fifty dollars to get five hundred images digitized and they do them one by one and that's great but wow the better thing to do Scott is that if you have by chance the negatives of your thirty five millimeter camera or from anything else you want to have those digitized that's actually going to be a better resolution and a better photo for you and we talk about that in the blog. But that is um, really the first step I recommend using because it's quicker, better resolution, and then you get a higher quality going forward. But if you don't, the, the hard copy is fine. But then there's like, what do you do? How do you do it? How do you sort them ahead of time? What do you do when you get them back? All of that we do have in a blog because it really is meant to take the big project process and, and simplify it for the common person, and which you know we were when we first started, too. All right. He's Chris Desmond from Memory Web. Chris, uh, great thoughts on, on getting into the projects that we should be on this time of year, because in the summer, we want to be out playing, right? Uh, yes, and baseball is the preferred sport. Yes, it is. <laughs> All right, Chris, thanks for coming on. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Dad. Dr. Henry Louis Gates is out this week, but we've got his man from the PBS show Finding Your Roots. It's Sabin Streeter on the show today. How are you, Sabin? Nice to have you along. I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on. It is a privilege. We well, love your show. Well, thank you so much. And, and tell me now about this past week's episode and the things we should look for, because people can stream it now that the show is aired. Oh, it's, it's a fantastic episode. This is an episode called The Slave Trade, and it's an episode where we focus on three guests, filmmaker Avery DuVernay, the musician Questlove, and actor Essie Patham-Merkerson. 
all African Americans, all who have stories that give us for our show an unusual amount of detail about the inner workings of the slave trade, how their families were shaped by the slave trade, and how the slave trade itself worked. And, and, and the reason these are unusual is with many of our African American guests, we are lucky to be able to go back and learn anything at all about them in slavery. For the most part, you can't find them in the records of the people who own them. You cannot find them at all. You, can, you can't know anything about their life right. in slavery. You look for the records of slave owners who might have owned them. And you know the only way you can really do that is hoping that they kept their slave owner's last name, which is a sort of perverse process. So these three guests, we were able to find a lot more about what happened to their enslaved ancestors. For Questlove, for example, we discovered his third great-grandfather, I believe it is. We find him in the 1880 census in Mobile, Alabama, and it says he was born in Africa, and that's super oh, wow. unusual. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is Straight back. Super, super unusual. Yeah, so he would have been born around 1820 in Africa. Well, the slave trade is outlawed in 1808, and so that means he was brought in illegally. And then right. it turns out we do more research, we discover that he was brought in on the very last slave ship, Clotilda, which is a... Yes, been somewhat which, which they just yes. found not long ago. Yes, they think they found it. But in any case, it is, it is a certainly historically uh, very significant ship. The story is just insane. In 1858, you know, the importation of slaves is illegal. Right. And these Alabama planters, you know, getting together, having some drinks, make a bet with each other that they can go get some slaves from Africa and import them. They hire a shipboat captain. He goes over to Africa. He buys a bunch of slaves. He brings them back into Mobile in 1860 as a bet. Wow. And two of Questlove's ancestors, as it turns out, are on this ship. And we have the journal of the ships. There was a whole court case around it. There's a lot of, wow. there a lot of newspaper articles around it. But so we have levels of detail about Questlove's two ancestors that you just don't ever get. We know the ship they were on. We know where in Africa they were taken from. We have a journal from the, the captain that drove the, the, the ship there and back. We Incredible. Have journal, so we know, and we have this newspaper article about these two crazy planters who thought this was an f- interesting idea to bet, you know, over <laughs> such a thing. So with S.E. Patham Merkerson, with the DNA store, we were able to tie her family back through DNA to this group of people who were sold by Georgetown University. 272 people sold. That's a very famous DNA story. It's a great story. And she is a descendant of those 272 people who were sold by the priests who ran Georgetown in 1838, south to Louisiana. And the people sort of, you know, stayed together as family units that has been sort of mapped out. And Ipeza had no idea she connected to these people. But because it was Georgetown, because they were priests, because they kept such good records, we have very detailed stuff about the movement of the slaves, the family structures when they were owned by Georgetown. And she found out she has, you know, Georgetown has tried to make some make good on these things a bit. They've re- recently named a residential hall after Ipeza's fourth great grandfather who was the oldest person sold in this slave. Wow, Sabin, this sounds like a great episode. Of course, it's on every Tuesday night on PBS, so we encourage you to check your local listings, find out the time in your area to see this episode, and of course, catch it online right now as this episode is already available to stream. Thanks so much, Sabin, and we look forward to getting Dr. Gates back next week. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. David Allen Lambert is back with us, the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. And uh, David, our question today is from Lou in Rhinebeck, New York. And he says, my ancestor was from New York and was in the War of 1812. He was captured by the British and taken to Halifax, Nova Scotia. Where might I find his records? Good question, Lou. 
Ooh, well, that actually is something I had a consultation on not long ago. So, War of 1812 American prisoners in Halifax were not held in downtown Halifax. They were held on Melville Island, which I think has a yacht club there now. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> in, of course, in 1812, there were up to over 1,800 people housed there in the barracks. And uh, there was even a 350-person prison ship called the Magnet that was uh, off the coast there. So they were running out of room on this small island. But uh, there is a cemetery. People did die, and there are records. Now, the thing about the records, some things you're going to find in the National Archives in England, because obviously it's British troops. Right, and British territory. Mm -hmm. However, you're still also going to find things at the public archives in Halifax, Nova Scotia. You may even find things in Ottawa at the Canadian National Archives. The other thing that you're going to do is you're going to find that some things are online. Family search for one. If you put in War of 1812 New York and you search through the records, you may find something. You may find it on Fold3 or on Ancestry.com just by looking under the subject matter in the catalog. So look for War of 1812. You can even look for Nova Scotia and see if there's anything under Halifax for prison records or logs and whatnot that may help you. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. And I should mention, too, if you don't have a subscription to all of the sites David just mentioned, if you go to a family search library, family history library near you, one of the satellite libraries, they have access to all of these accounts for free right there. So it's a, it's a good place to go. War of 1812 is fascinating. And I, this is one where I learned that I had a, a guy who actually was in it for about a month, and mm-hmm. he was in as a substitute and uh, the whole thing with the substitutes is amazing because they, they actually answered to the person's name that they were substituting for. And do you have the name of the substitute of your research to the person he was serving for? Yes. He lived in that same area, and it had a kind of a unique name. So I, I guess the, the guy had money, and this kid wanted to fight. So <laughs> that's how it went. And he, he actually answered to the name of the man he was substituting for, and then later went and applied for the uh, soldier's pension. But, of course, uh, it was under the other guy's name, so he wasn't able to obtain that. But the substitute thing actually came into play in the Civil War. It was in, oh. in play in the Revolution. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who fought that way. But I, I found it a fascinating thing that they'd actually answer to that person's name and not their own. Well, I suppose in one way they're probably holding that place marker for that person's name as a recruit. I've actually seen records and pensions that said I served as a substitute for Thomas Johnson. And so you find out who he got paid by. Then it's almost interesting to research as an associate who that substitute was and look at Thomas Johnson's say maybe, well, he maybe was wealthy or a wealthy man's son. All right. Well, thanks to Lou for the question from Rhinebeck, New York. And I hope that answers your question and kind of took us down the rabbit hole a little bit there, David. But it was all good. (laughs) Thanks for coming on. And of course, if you have a question for Ask Us Anything, you can email us at askusanything at extremegenes.com. Hey, that is it for this week. Thanks to our guest, Diane Southard, for coming on. She's written a new book called Your DNA Guide, The Book. Also to Chris Desmond from Memory Web, talking about preserving your photos. Sabin Streeter from the PBS series Finding Your Roots, in for Dr. Henry Louis Gates this week. And, of course, to David Allen Lambert. Talk to you again next week. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.